All right, well, good morning. Uh, if you did not grab a Colossians Bible journal, there should be some, some, one somewhere around you, and they're sitting in the back as well. Uh, we are going to spend time for the next 12 weeks or so in the book of Colossians, and I am super stoked on that. Uh, we, this is our first book of the Bible we're going to study through as a church, and, and we have labeled this sermon series Matchless. And, and here's what we're getting at in that. The, the theme of the book of Colossians is is the absolute sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ, and he alone is matchless. He alone is without rival. He alone is without equal. And so we're going to sing songs about Jesus, and we're going to look to Colossians to see more and more of Jesus. Now, those Bible journals, uh, for me personally, it's going to serve as a bit of an Ebenezer. Uh, if you've never heard of an Ebenezer, it's, it's this Old Testament reminder, these stones that the people of God would build to remember something that God did on their behalf, a deliverance, a, a particular move of his power. And I'm so stoked for this to serve for the years to come as an Ebenezer of our first sermon uh, uh, series as a church. Now, before we jump into the text that you just heard, I'm going to do a bit of teaching. I'm going to spend about half my time this morning doing some teaching before we jump into the text. And so it's going to be a little bit longer of a sermon, but, but buckle up. We can, we can do it together. So what I want to do is answer two particular questions for us this morning before we jump into the text. The first te- uh, question I want to ask is, why do we study and preach through books of the Bible? at Story Church. And the second question is, why are we starting with Colossians? Now, I don't want to make any assumptions that we all know why we study through books of the Bible together, so I really want to answer that question first. Why do we study and preach through books of the Bible at Story Church? So I'm going to give you five reasons, okay? This is going to be the long, like, there's going to be like 13 or 15 points by the end of this sermon, and I promise there will never be one this long again. I I can't make that promise, actually. I just, I probably just lied to you. But I got a lot of points today, so, so hang in there and, and take notes in your Bible journal. There's a, there's a whole, whole note side there. So five reasons why we study and preach through books of the Bible. First, first reason is authority. My authority as a preacher or anyone who stands behind this, we'll call it a music stand because that's what it is. Anyone who stands behind this music stand and preaches, the authority is not sourced in us, but it's sourced in the living, the active word of God. Listen, God is far less concerned with the messenger and way more concerned with the message. He is concerned with the message that we preach here at Story Church. And any pastor or elder, anyone who comes up here to preach the word of God, we want it to be sound doctrine, found in the word of God. We at Story Church stand under the authority of the Bible. We do not stand over the Bible. In other words, you're not going to get man's opinion here at Story Church. You're going to get God's word. And here's why. Man's opinion always leads to death, and God's word always leads to life. So we are going to stand under the authority of God's word, and we are going to let him speak. The second reason is inerrancy. The God's word is the only inerrant writing in the world, and we know that God carried men along to author the words of the scriptures. That's 2 Peter 1, and According to Proverbs 30, verse 5, all the words in this Bible are true. And according to 2 Timothy 3, God's word is profitable for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Listen, there there are going to be things that someone says up here that are going to be off a little bit. We're going to miss the mark at times. And when we do, we're going to repent of those things. We're going to correct those things. But God alone speaks perfectly all the time and in every time. 
And so what we want to do is simply speak God's thoughts after him at this gathering each and every week. So that's why we preach through books of the Bible. The third reason is obedience or fidelity. We preach through God's word as as an act of obedience to the commands of God. We are commanded, according to 2 Timothy 2, to be ready to preach in season and out of season. We are commanded, 2 Timothy 4, to preach the whole counsel of God. We are are commanded to provide the public reading and teaching of the scriptures. That's 1 Timothy 4. And the Christian life is validated by obedience and invalidated by disobedience. And we want to model obedience for you every time we gather by doing what God tells us to do. Every time we gather, we are called to preach and teach the scriptures. And we are going to do that through books of the Bible as an act of obedience. We want to lead the way for this church into obedience to God's word. The fourth reason is tradition. Jesus Christ comes on the scene in the New Testament and he begins preaching the Old Testament. In Luke 24, he says, all these words are all about me. And then he calls the apostles to himself and he sends them out on their mission in the book of Acts. And they start by preaching God's word. We see this with Peter at Pentecost in Acts 2. We see this with Stephen in Acts 7 and 8. We see this with the Apostle Paul all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We see the primary way that churches are planted, churches are grown, churches are moved to maturity is through the preaching of God's word. And then we look at the letters in the New Testament and we see constantly Paul and Peter and John and others writing to churches and to people telling them to preach the word of God. And then we step out of Bible times and we step into what's called the early church fathers period. And we see them picking up that baton and carrying it along. And then we move through the medieval times and the Reformation and Enlightenment up to today. And the tradition set forth for us is to do the systematic expositional preaching of God's word alone. This is what God has called us to do and we don't want to do anything new here. We're simply stepping into an ancient stream and we want to continue carrying that along at Story Church. And the fifth reason why we preach through books of the Bible here is submission, submission. Now, let me ask a question. Who knows, who knows what's best for me, for you, and for our church? Do I know what's best or does God know what's best? God knows what's best. And you know what that does for me? That allows me to step back and and not feel anxious or feel like I have to come up with creative ways to, to preach and creative sermon series and all these kind of things. You know what I can do? I can just say, word of God, speak. And I can get out of the way as an act of submission. God always knows what we need better than we do. God knows the needs of this church today, tomorrow, and as long as we are around. And so we are going to let him teach us. And we are going to stay sensitive to him as we preach his word. So we are going to submit to God. And, and the word picture that, that I learned in, in seminary is kind of like... Imagine you're at this, this great restaurant and, and there's this, this incredible like three Michelin star chef sitting in the back preparing this perfect meal and there's people out in the restaurant that spent like $700 to, to eat this, this meal and, and you're just the waiter. What you got to do is walk back to the, the chef, grab the meal, and then go take it to the table so that people can eat. Anyone who preaches here at Story Church, that's what we want to do. We want to be the waiter. We want to go to God and say, okay, we're going to carry this to your people and, and just pray we don't mess it up along the way. 
We're going to let God speak. And as an act of submission, we are going to submit to everything. Listen, if you don't preach through books of the Bible, it's really easy to avoid the things that are hard to hear. It's really easy to avoid the things that you don't want to be spoken to you. And those are the things that we all need to hear. And we don't need to shake our fist at God, but rather we need to open our empty hands of faith, repent, trust him, and walk in obedience to his commands and his word. So we are going to preach through books of the Bible as an act of submission. So to recap, we preach through books of the Bible because God is the authority God speaks perfectly. God demands our obedience. This is the tradition God has set forth for us, and we are going to submit to God alone. Now, next question. Why are we starting in the book of Colossians at Story Church? That's a really easy one for me to answer. Here's how it goes. I want to. (laughs) Right? But and it's my favorite book in the Bible, and so it just feels like I'm putting the tea, you know, the ball in the tea, and I just, I just want to hit it. But here, here's the reason why I want to, and here are really five reasons why I want to and, and why I love this book so much. Five reasons. First reason, Jesus. If I can make up a word, Colossians is the most Jesus-y book in the New Testament. The most Jesus-y book in the New Testament. So there's a particular study in theology called Christology. Christology is the study of Jesus Christ. It is one of the most important theological tenets that you can understand and probably one of the most neglected in our day and age where we find ourselves. So we're going to marry the two and say, let's get a proper understanding of Jesus Christ and let us step into that. Now, Grab your Colossians Bible journal or or Bible, and I'm going to fly through about the first chapter and a half, and we're just going to see Jesus, okay? So hang with me. I'm just going to move really quickly, and I'm not going to explain anything. 1-1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, verse 2, to the faithful brothers in Christ, verse 3, God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, jump down to verse 7. Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Uh, every time you see the word him or he, that's referencing to Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 13 with me. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's Jesus. Verses 15 through, through 20, uh, 23, really, what we're going to hear next week, that's all about Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Go over to verse 24. What is lacking in Christ's affliction? Uh, jump down to verse, let's see, 27. The glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28, present everyone mature in Christ. Uh, Jump down to chapter 2, verse 2. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom all uh, are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4, firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6, therefore as you receive Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, I'll stop there. I can go for another two and a half chapters and we will just see Jesus, 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 Jesus on repeat. And so what we want to do is fix our eyes upon Jesus through the book of Colossians, understand him rightly, worship him rightly, and follow him rightly in all of life. 
The second reason why we're starting with Colossians, it's setting. The setting, the cultural and historical setting of the city called Colossae. It actually shares some similarities with where we find ourselves here today. So Colossae, this city, was located in what was called the Lycus Valley. And there was two other cities located in this valley, the city of Laodicea and the city of Hierapolis. Both of those cities will be referenced in the letter as we preach through it. Now, here's what's interesting. Those two cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, were like major metropolises with, with booming economies, all kinds of people. There was, there, there, there was, there was trade routes, massive trade routes running through them. And, and Colossae was just kind of 100 kilometers away, and it was just the place that you passed through to get to the other cities. Now, hopefully, that sounds a little bit like the IE to you, <laughs> Right? Listen, uh, we'll be honest here. Katie and I, as we were praying and considering where, where God wanted us to church plant when we came back to Southern California, we went to L.A. Like we went to the, to the high rises and the storefront churches and, and we thought about how cool it would be down in L.A. And Tim Keller said you should plant urban churches. So we were going to do that. And, and then God made it clear, like, no, not there. And then we're like, okay, we'll, we'll transition. We'll look at Orange County. That would be fun. Like we could try to afford to live there. If not, we'll just become beach bums and we'll live on the beach. We'll get the good weather. We'll, we'll kind of have this slow, peaceful lifestyle. And, and God made it clear. It was like, no, not there. And then we looked at the IE and we're like, man, like the IE is not a place you go. It's a place you end up, right? <laughs> and listen, I'm born and raised in Rancho. I love the IE, and I'm so glad God called us here. But, but listen, we're just kind of a pass-through area, right? Pass-through us to get to Vegas, pass-through us to get to Palm Springs, pass-through us to go to the beach or to L.A., and, 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 and that's just how it goes. And you know what makes me really glad about Colossians? This little church in a forgotten town that people pass through has a book of the Bible written to it. God cares about the forgotten places God cares about the, the least. God cares about the last. God cares about the places. Now, I'm not going to make it sound more terrible than it. I love this city. I love the IE. But, but man, when we're, when we're surrounded by L.A. And, and Orange County, it's nice to have this book of the Bible in here so we can look at how much God cares for us and God cares for Rancho. The third reason why is the heresy that Paul will uh, attack in the book of Colossians that he'll tackle there. So, so here's how it goes. Paul actually doesn't plant the church at Colossae. He never actually visits it. What Paul does is he makes a disciple by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras goes to Colossae. He plants a church. And that church begins to grow. And people get involved. And here's what happens when people get involved in churches. It's no longer perfect. Drama takes root. Heresy, false teaching begins to happen. And, and let me just take this moment to, to caveat. Like, man, the second any one of us walked through those doors, this church was no longer perfect. This church isn't about us. It's not perfect. Our preferences aren't going to be met. Every, it's just not always going to be perfect. It's going to be hard at times. And so that's why we're going to take heart in this. But in particular, the, the heresies that were taking root uh, had a couple of few, few different things going on here. There, there was three different things going on in Colossae that Paul was confronting. 
The first one is what was called syncretism. Here's what syncretism is. It's taking multiple kind of worldviews, ideologies, religions, whatever else, political views, systems, and throwing it into a blender, pressing play, uh, and hoping that something coherent comes out, hoping that something can blend together. And listen, that's, that's true of us and where we find ourselves here today. Many of us, we, we have we, unconscious syncretistic views of this world. Like we think that Jesus can be, if if I'm allowed to say this, Jesus can be like a side chick, right? Jesus can just be on the side that we add on to our lives. We think Jesus can just go in the blender of our lives and we can think that something coherent is going to come out of that. But syncretism is actually illogical and incoherent. Jesus is not an add-on to our lives. Jesus is our life. Jesus is all. Jesus is enough. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is everything. And if you claim to come to Christ, what you say in, in claiming Christ is I'm saying no to everything else. It's Jesus alone. And so we're going to look at Jesus alone through Colossians. The second heresy is something called asceticism. Asceticism is the denial of good things that God created to try and create some kind of spiritual experience for yourself. You're going to see Paul in in Colossians 2 kind of quoting this heresy that says, do not eat, do not touch, do not taste. That's, That's asceticism right there. It's the denial of really good things that God has given us. And the Jewish law system began to come into play here in Colossae where where they were taking the Jewish kosher food laws and adding more and more laws onto it and saying you have to obey these things in order to come to Christ. And Paul is going to go ahead and confront that and say, all you need to come to Christ is Christ. That's it. And God has given us these really good things to enjoy. And he has given us good food and good drink and nature and vacation and other people to enjoy. And, And those things never terminate or stop on ourselves and our enjoyment of them. They always roll up into proper worship of God. Like, Man, it, it is worshipful to eat a good filet, right? It is worshipful. Yeah, yes and amen. It is worshipful. Taco man, right? Oh, it's coming. It is worshipful to climb Baldy and to look out and see what God created. And so asceticism is saying, no, no it, it's defaming God and his creative artwork in our world. The third heresy that you'll see is Gnosticism. Gnosticism was beginning to take root in Colossae. And and Gnosticism, at the the core of that, is the word gnosis, which means knowledge. And these false teachers that were teaching Gnosticism were were teaching that they had some kind of knowledge of this world, some kind of enlightened experience that's going to elevate them to a a place of spirituality that other people weren't on. And, and, And what they were teaching is that the spirit is is good, but the body and this material world are evil. And, and, and by finding this secret knowledge, your spirit can escape your body and you can finally be free. And, and Paul, again, is going to confront that. And you're going to see him say this word mystery a lot throughout the, uh, the book of Colossians. And what he's going to say is the mystery has been made plain. Christianity is Christ and him crucified. And that's it. Christianity is all and only about Christ. Christ has revealed himself. Christ is easy to understand. Christianity is easy to grasp. And by the Spirit, we can be enlightened to understand, illuminated to understand these truths about Jesus. And so he's saying, if anyone's trying to sell you some kind of self-help or mystery or some kind of knowledge that you don't attain, listen, you don't need that. You got Jesus, and that's all you need. 
And so that's the heresy that Paul is going to confront, and we'll, we'll, we'll walk through that as we jump into the book. The fourth reason is our infancy. We're a young church. We're not yet mature or healthy yet as a church. We're, we're well on our way, and I, I love that, but we're not there yet. And like any newborn baby, we are particularly susceptible to minor things coming in and, and, and damaging our health and damaging our systems and those kind of things. And so what we want to do is fix our eyes upon the right things and walk in the right direction and take little baby steps. And we know that if we put our eyes upon Jesus and we put one foot in front of the other and we're going to do that through Colossians, we're going to continue to mature. We're going to continue to grow. And God's going to continue to change us and help us. And so our infancy is why we're going to jump into Colossians. And then finally, his power. His power. Now, this one's generic and it applies to every book of the Bible. When the word of God is preached and the gospel is preached, God moves in power. We don't have to manipulate that. We don't have to force his hand. We, we just know and trust every time the living and active word of God is preached and, and Christ and him crucified is heralded, God will move in power. And so we know we are going to ask him to move in power, and he's going to do that every week. He's going to save. He's going to grow. He's going to change us. And we're going to go from one degree of glory to the next through the preaching of God's word, starting in the book of Colossians. So to recap that, we're going to start in Colossians because of Jesus, because of where the church was and where we find ourselves, because of the false teaching that Paul will confront, because of how young we are, and because we need his power to grow and mature. Okay, that's not the sermon. That's just the start. I hope you packed a lunch. We'll get out around two today. <laughs> Maybe the taco man. How many times can I say taco man in one gathering? That would be like I would the games we play. All right, verses 1 through 14 this morning. Verses 1 through 14. I only have about 15 or 20 minutes. We're going to do a flying overview of that. And so my hope would be maybe you grab someone that's sitting around you and say, hey, let's go to lunch afterwards. Let's bring our Bible journals. Let's, let's talk more about this. Let's study this together. Listen, theology is best done in community. Theology is not a, a, a solo sport. It's a team sport. Maybe in your home group or, or a gathering, you guys can, can take it a little deeper. But I'm just going to do a flying overview of 1 through 14 this morning. So there's this New York Times op-ed columnist that goes by the name of David Brooks. Any, anyone heard of David Brooks? Okay, wow. We got one, two, three. You guys need to read some papers. <laughs> they're, digi they're digitally available, guys. You don't have to have them delivered. David Brooks wrote a book called The Road to Character. And in this book, he, he basically says you can divide Americans in our mindset into two distinct camps. Here's how he'll, he'll break it down. David Brooks says, It occurred to me that there were, were two, only two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral, whether you were kind, brave, honest, faithful. Were you capable of deep love? We all know that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and our educational systems spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build inner character. Now, David Brooks is a self-professed non-Christian, but he is tapping into something incredibly deep here. And what he's tapping into is that we all want lives of meaning. We want lives of impact. 
We are made in the image of the creator God. So we all have within us this desire to impact this world, to create for good, to to do things of meaning. And what he's exposing is that the American workaholic mindset has created us into beings that want to be known by our accomplishments and our degrees rather than our character and our presence. And I can make some assumptions this morning. I can make an assumption that you're at a church gathering at 940 in the morning because you want to live a life of impact or meaning. Or you're here because you know something is off and something is missing and you, and you want that. What if I told you the meaningful life is found here in these verses? It's found in these first 14 verses of Colossians. Because I I believe they are. And, And what if the meaningful life has nothing to do with the resume virtues and everything to do with the eulogy virtues? That's what Paul is going to teach us this morning. Paul is going to jump into this prayer for the Colossian church, and he's going to tell them what a meaningful life looks like. And he's going to say that a meaningful life is a life lived in Christ and a life lived for Christ. The meaningful life is a life in Christ and for Christ. In verses 3 through 8, he's going to show us a life lived in Christ. And then in verses 9 through 14, he's going to show us a life lived for Christ. So let's jump into verses 3 through 8 together. This is the life lived in Christ. So let's read back through verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's pause there. Paul begins by praising God for the Colossian and the Colossians' church. Why? Because they are in Christ. You see it, to the saints and faithful brothers, here brothers and sisters, in Christ. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ. He says, he says that, that, that the, the governing reality for every Christian's life is a life lived in Christ. Christ. And to be in Christ means you are united to Christ. You are bound to Christ. You are one with Christ. To be in Christ means that it is impossible to be separated from your relationship with him. Can someone get me a tissue, please? My nose is running here. Sorry about that. Here's how Sam Storms will say it, this life in Christ. He'll say, no matter where you are geographically and physically, what you are spiritually. Thank you, Daniel. What you are spiritually will never change. You may be at work, at play, overseas, under the weather, out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be down in the dumps, over the hill, or beside yourself, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be at paradise or in prison, at the movies or in Chicago, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. This is the reality for every Christian in this room. To apprehend this truth with your mind will create a meaningful life. When you begin to see all of life as being a life lived in Christ, it changes everything about how you live and how you operate. So how would you describe your family of origin? How how would you describe it? Here's what I mean by that. Is your family a military family? Is your family an athletic family, a a musical family? Is your family uh, go to a particular school, like like USC? Like, are you a a family that goes to USC? I'm sorry if you do. Um, I love you, Danny. I had to do that for him. 
is your, is your, does your family have a particular trade? We're, we're teachers, we're mechanics. How would you describe your family of origin? For, for us, none of, none of my family's here today, so I can make fun of them. The Cunninghams are loud. And you probably picked up on that with about four seconds at this church. Um, the Cunninghams are loud, and, and my wife's family, she's a Mede, the Medes are quiet. So when we first met and were moving towards marriage, it began creating some, uh, we'll call it discombobulating experiences and conversations with one another. Here's what I mean. Katie would come to Thanksgiving at the Cunningham household, and here's the picture of, of, of the scene. There's about 50 people at the house. There's like 15 kids under the age of 10. There's food everywhere. There's drink everywhere. There's dessert everywhere. Usually football is on the screen. It's blasted over all the noise in the kitchen because we don't want to hear that. We want to hear what Joe Buck is saying about the Lions. Like there's things going on there. Yeah, that's right, buddy. Go Lions. The kids are running in and out of the house. Like it's, it's just absolutely insane. And then conversation around the Cunningham Thanksgiving table, um, it doesn't sound like conversation. It sounds more like arguments. And so Katie was like, man, do you guys actually love each other? What is going on there? Like we just feel free to be really honest and to say some things that probably shouldn't be said and to say it at a level 10. And so that's how, that's how it goes for us. Now, Katie's family is quiet. So I go to my first Thanksgiving at the Mead household, and there's like legitimately four of us around the table. (laughs) We eat a quick meal, we clean up, we eat a quick dessert, we clean up, and then everyone navigates to the living room and turns on KCAL 9 to watch the 7 o'clock news. (laughs) That's not a joke. I don't know why you're laughing. That happened. (laughs) And I'm sitting there, we're driving home from, from this Thanksgiving meal, and I'm like, do you guys know each other's names? Like, what's going on here? right? And so it was hard for us. And and because of my family of origin, I don't mind loud spaces. Things that are labeled as arguments don't feel like arguments to me. I have a really high level of tolerance for conflict. And and that was just hard for Katie to get used to. And, and, And so the reason why I'm bringing that up is because Paul will say, when you come to Christ, your new family of origin is God's family, and it changes the way you see the world. You step into a family that is described by a few governing realities. What he's going to say, look, look back to verse 4 with me. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hopefully that triggers some thoughts. Paul's going to use this triad of words all the time in the New Testament, faith, love, and hope, to describe genuine Christianity, to, to describe those of us who are in Christ. So first he's going to say, people of Christ are people of faith. And to be a person of faith, it's to be a person who puts the full weight of their trust on an object. So, so here's what I mean by that. Right now, I'm placing a lot of faith on this stage. Right now, I'm trusting this stage to hold my weight and the weight of everything up here on this stage. Now, there's a lot of faith involved in this decision. I haven't got underneath this stage and looked at how it's constructed. I haven't looked. They use two by fours, one by ones. Is there plywood? Was it glued together? Did they use a, a nail gun? Uh, how's the foundation looking? Is it level? Is it, is it secure? I haven't seen the permits. Did they pull permits for this or did they just kind of Mickey Mouse it together? How, how did this work? And that's not a slam on this stage. It's just I haven't had those questions answered, and yet I'm trusting this stage to uphold my weight. And Paul is going to say those who are in Christ put their full weight upon the object of their faith, and the object of their faith is Jesus Christ. 
And a lot of times we don't have every question answered. We don't have every doubt confronted. We don't have every skepticism uh, just kind of secured. A lot of times, many of us have unanswered questions about Jesus Christ, what he's doing in our lives, what he's doing in this world. And Paul is going to say, despite that, those who are in Christ are placing their full weight upon him in all things. And to have faith in Christ is to have faith only in Christ. So those who are living in Christ, those who want meaningful life are those who have faith in Christ. Next, he's going to say people who are in Christ are people of love. Now, that's that's pretty easy to understand, this idea of love. What's hard to understand about this verse is that he says you have love for all the saints. Those who are in Christ have love for all the saints. That's hard to do, right? We can look around the room right now and see a couple hundred people. Surely one or two of us is unlovable. But listen, when I find myself having, having a hard time loving someone else, what I've done to coach myself to love that person is to remind myself of how lovable, unlovable I am at times. Right? There's times where I wake up grouchy or irritable, right? And I'm, I'm jumping on the kids for no reason, and, and I'm not really engaging with Katie. And you know what? They, they don't turn their backs on me. They pursue me in love. And Katie engages with me and the kids engage with me and they they love me back. And then I remind myself how often in my sin I turn my back on my father in heaven and I don't love him back for how much he has loved me. And I I run away from him and God continues to pursue me in love and he continues to pursue all of us in love. And so despite our quirks and our differences and our conflicts and our arguments and things that are going to happen at Story Church, we have love for all all the saints. We pursue one another. And one way we can do that is by reminding ourselves of how often we need to be pursued with love. The third thing he's going to say marks genuine Christianity is hope. He says, the hope you have laid up in heaven for you. Hope is not a crossing of your fingers and wishing for things to come through. Hope is certainty that Christ and his promises are going to come to fruition. We have a hope in heaven where Christ dwells and we know that every promise he makes, he will keep and he is going to bring our hope to sight upon his return. So these are the three traits that mark those in Christ, faith, hope, and love. Just as Cunninghams are loud and and Meads are quiet, those who are in Christ are full of faith, hope, and love. Here's the thing though. None of those things are resume virtues. All of those are eulogy virtues. None of those things are praised in culture because they are not measurable. I dare you to go to Shark Tank, to stand in front of those, those, those investors and say, here's my product, faith, hope, and love. And watch yourself get laughed out of that room because it's not measurable. There's no return on investment. There's no bottom line that we can trace. Those are all eulogy virtues, but the meaningful life is found in the eulogy virtues. And what's really good, even though faith, love, and hope will not be measured on Shark Tank, they are measured in God's economy and they will be praised at Story Church. We are a people of faith and hope and love. And then Paul will ground this back in the gospel. Look back to the second half of verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, 
the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So what Paul is going to say is, is you, don't, you don't muster up faith and you don't muster up love and hope and say, okay, God, now I'm, now I'm available for you. Come and get me. The problem, friends, is internal and the solution is external. The problem is our sin and the solution is Christ in our place paying the penalty of our sin. And when he invites us to himself and he unites us to himself, that produces then from us faith, love, and hope. This is the word of the truth, the gospel, and it is advancing across the world. It is bearing fruit. It is increasing. It has come to the church at Colossae. It has come to the church at Rancho Cucamonga. And God is still in the work of saving. And we, 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 can't, we can't work to acceptance from God. We work from a place of acceptance with God. So we must relent our forced trying to, to, to have this faith, to have this love, to have this hope, and just submit ourselves to Christ in us, working through us. And then Paul will go ahead and give the Colossians a living and breathing example of what this looks like. Look at verse 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul's going to say, okay, faith, love, and hope, they're not, they're not measurable. To be in Christ, it's not, it's not measurable. So let me put some flesh and bones to this. Just, just, just look at Epaphras. This is a man who embodies this, this faith and this love and this hope. He's going to say, you learned the gospel from Epaphras. Epaphras is a, a teacher of truth. He's going to say Epaphras is a fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ. Someone who is marked by faith and by hope and by love is someone who is a servant and a minister. And we know that intuitively that this is true. You, you, you become a servant because of love in you. It's not our natural disposition to serve one another. But in Christ, we see that true love is self-sacrificing love. Christ did not begrudgingly go to the cross to, to die for our sin, but Christ willfully went to the cross because of the joy set before him. He suffered knowing it would come with our salvation. And so for Epaphras to the church at Colossae, he showed them that all love is a servant love. All love is a sacrificial love. He is a faithful minister. He is someone who cared and gave of himself for the sake of others. He ministered in the hardest of places. And that's what faith and hope and love do for us. But again, none of that is measurable. Being a servant is, is to go unseen. Being a servant is to do all the dirty things and all the hard things and all the things no one else wants to do behind the scenes. And it's not going to be applauded and praised. And yet Epaphras gladly did that. And we at Story Church want to be about that because we know at the end of our service is a meaningful life in Christ. And so let us be a church who lives in Christ. And what we must do is pursue Christ and nothing else. All about Jesus at Story Church, pursuing eulogy virtues to be kind and loving and generous and caring and sacrificial and more. And I believe God is already working these things out in our midst. And let's corporately pray for more. So the first point, the meaningful life, the eulogy virtues are found in Christ. 
In verses 9 through 14, we're going to see life lived for Christ. He's going to transition, Paul's going to transition from praising God for the work in Colossians. And and then he's going to transition to a petition. So from praise to petition. Look at verse 9 with me. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul asks for something. What what does he ask for? He asks that God would fill them with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Remember that Gnostic mindset, this hidden knowledge that no one really has? Paul is going to go ahead and confront that and say, the knowledge is available to you. The moment you come to Christ, the spirit dwells within you and the spirit now gives you understanding of Jesus, understanding of God's word. And everything that you have is found, or everything that you need is found in God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, helping you understand and apply this. So there's not some kind of secret knowledge in this world for sale that once you reach enlightenment, you can go get it but rather everything you need is found right here. And all you need to do is look to God's word and Jesus Christ and you will be filled with knowledge. You will be filled with understanding and you will be filled with wisdom. So Paul's gonna say it's not that tricky. It's all found in Christ and in his word. And then he moves on to verse 10 and says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That right there is the life lived for Christ. So you're in Christ, you're filled with knowledge, you're filled with understanding, and it moves into action. It moves into a life lived for Christ, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord pleasing the Lord, bearing fruit in all of life, increasing in your life. Now, that sounds like a high and holy requirement for us. I don't know about you, but you, you, do you hear that and feel a little bit intimidated? Like walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Man, if I just evaluate the last 48 hours of my life, my, my thought life, my, my, gosh, I'm not always doing that and I'm certainly never doing it perfectly So this command to to live worthy of Christ and to bear fruit in all of life, it feels impossible to do. And friend, on your own, it is. On your own, it is impossible to walk worthy of the Lord. On your own, it is impossible to bear good fruit, which is why verse 11 is such good news. He says, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. This is good news. The ability to live for Christ is found in Christ. His power, do you see, according to his glorious might, he will strengthen us. He will give us power. He will give us patience. He will give us joy. He will help us endure this life. Christ is the one who has qualified us to live this worthy lifestyle. And he is the one who empowers us to live this holy lifestyle. And so God demands of us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But here is the great news. God supplies that which he demands of you. God supplies for you that which he demands of you. God demands for you to live a life for Christ, and then he supplies you with the power to go and do it. So the life lived for Christ is not one of white-knuckled, anxiety-filled, scoreboard-keeping effort, but rather the life lived for Christ is one lived in submission to his power working in and through us. This is good news, friends. And then in verses 12 through 14, Paul's going to loop back around to the gospel again. Read it with me. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Did you hear those words of gospel joy? He says he has qualified us. He has delivered us. He has transferred us. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. Here's what these mean. He says, according to the work of Christ, you have been qualified. Christ has qualified you for this life in him and for him. I have a friend right now who's training for the Boston Marathon, probably because he likes to torture himself. But he's been training for about two years right now, and he's exercising daily. He's lifting weights. He's eating this crazy diet of, like, kale and quinoa and probably some bird seed because that's what they taste like. And... Um, He's running, like, except, like, the amount of hours he spends running is crazy to me. And, and, and I was having a conversation with him at Starbucks a few weeks ago, and, and I'm just, I've asked him, like, have you ever wondered and, and, and asked, like, would it be okay if someone else just qualified for me and gave me their ticket and I went and ran in that thing and just went super slow? It doesn't really matter. He's like, yeah, I, every time I'm running, I feel that way. I want someone else to qualify for me. And Paul is saying, Christ has qualified you for this meaningful life. Paul is saying your ability to live in Christ and your ability to live for Christ comes by Christ. And the qualification is entirely fulfilled by Christ's resume, not ours. Christ has imputed to us his perfect life of obedience. And so we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And living in Christ means we are pleasing to God because Christ has already qualified us. Not according to our work, but according to his. He then says you're delivered and transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. From darkness to light, from Satan to Christ, you have been carried across this chasm of captivity and sin to this freedom and liberation in Christ. And the one who carried you is Jesus. And it was done by his atoning work on the cross. You have been delivered by Jesus. You have been redeemed by Jesus. To be redeemed by Jesus is to be bought out of slavery to Satan and to sin and to be put into this land of freedom. And Christ paid the, cross, or the cost on Calvary that we might be made free. We have been redeemed by Jesus. We have been forgiven by Jesus. God has separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Christ has blotted out our transgression and the ink that blotted it out was the spilled blood on on the cross. We are forgiven. So Paul says your life in Christ and your life for Christ is happening because of your life by Christ. It is not the life you forced. It's not the life you lived. It's not the life you qualified for, but it, it is rooted in history. Did you hear all those past tense words? Qualified, delivered, transferred. It was already done in your place by Christ. So you work from a place of acceptance in Christ, not to a place of acceptance in Christ. So who or what are you living for? Are you living for your spouse, for your children, for your mortgage, for your home, for your job, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for your reputation, or are you living for Christ alone? That's where the meaningful life is found. We have all discovered the exhaustion at the end of living for someone else. We have all discovered the pain of living for someone else or for something else, but to live for Christ is to live the meaningful life. 
And again, it's found in pursuing these eulogy virtues, not these resume virtues. So if you want this life of meaning, and again, I'm guessing you do, what is your status? Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? Listen, the invitation is there. Come to Christ. Be bound to him in faith. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to qualify for it. The work has been done by Jesus in your place. All you have to do is place your trust in him. My prayer is that anyone who came in here outside of Christ is going to leave this place in Christ. We're going to celebrate that again. Who are you living for? What are you living for? Someone, something else? And what can shift? And how can we live by the gospel power for Christ alone? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you that we can live by Christ, in Christ, and for Christ. I pray that in our midst you would make Christ alone the focus of our eyes the focus of our minds, the focus of our hearts, the focus of our hands, the focus of our words. That we would be a church that is marked by living in Christ and living for Christ. That we would gladly shed our lives of anything that distracts us from Christ, that moves us away from Christ, that, 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 that trips us up on the way to Jesus, and that we would be known for Jesus' love and the hope we have in him, the faith we have in him, and that would create a contagious Christianity that goes around the IE and more people will come to live in Christ. God, I do pray for those who are outside of Christ this morning. Would you bring them to yourself? Would you save them? Would you unite them to Christ? Would you give them the gift of repentance, of turning from sin and trusting in him alone? And I pray that we would go forth from this place and our focus would be to live for Jesus alone. Help us, God. We can't do that on our own, but I'm thankful for the good news of this verse that we live according to your glorious might, not ours. So empower us, I pray, God. In Christ's name, amen.